You know, I remember the first time that I thought about giants. I was a little tight. You guys won't remember this, but I will. It was a TV commercial. Garden. What I know today is they had a miniature garden, and they had this guy standing up there, and he sang. They sang, in the valley of the jolly ho, ho, ho. Green giant. I remember that. And the only thing that, remember, that I remember any more than that is I remember Jack and the beanstalk and the giant, and he, how he would say, Fee, fi, fo, fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I'll crush his bones and make my bread. You remember those things? I remember those giant things, all right? But you know, the Bible has a lot to say about giants. A lot to say about giants. The first thing that, and I didn't research this, so you can prove me wrong. I'm just telling you off the top of my head that the first time I remember giants mentioned in the Bible, the children of Israel had been brought out of uh, uh, captivity by Moses. They, come, they made about a three- or four-week journey and came to Kadesh Barnea, the land of the promise from God lay just across the way. And they elected a committee, and the committee went, went in, and they brought the first committee report on record back, and it was a report that you could call the good, the bad, the ugly. The good is, yes, Moses, everything's just like he said it was. There's milk and honey. There's fruit. Here's some examples. The bad was, oh, there's giants over there. And the ugly was they choose, chose to look at the size of the giants instead of the size of their God. They chose to follow their fear instead of following the Father. And in that case, the giants won. And giants frequently win. Tonight, we have read at some length what I think could arguably be stated as the most famous story in the Bible about giants, David and Goliath. In fact, it is so well known that as you, uh, as you will realize and know that we're not the only one that talks about David and Goliath. You'll hear it on the news report. It's kind of like a Goliath against the David. People know about David and Goliath. So with this in our background, let's, let's, uh, uh, let's just investigate the land of the giants a little bit tonight. I would tell you to begin with, if there were a universal symbol for a giant, it would be the Philistines. Because you see, the Philistines were always big people. I mean, Goliath was 10 foot tall. Okay, wait a minute. I know he was only 9'9". So instead of being 120 inches tall, he was 117 inches tall. Sue me for three inches. I bet when he came down that hill with all that armor on, I bet he looked 12 to 15 foot tall. Because that's the way he all, the giant always looks. He always looks bigger than he is. And we know the story. So what I want to do tonight is I just want to, I want to give you two thoughts. If you're writing down, the first thought that I want to give you is I want to give you the thought about some enlightenment. How to, how, things to make us think in ways that we've not thought before. To enlighten us about the giants. And we're going to use Goliath a lot, okay? So let's begin with this. Let's begin with maybe a description 
a description of a giant. How do we describe a giant? If we look in the Bible, how, what, what qualities, what characteristics, how do we recognize him? Well, I want to give you five qualities that I find of, uh, uh, of Goliath, and I think will hold true about every giant in your life. First of all, when that giant came over the hill, he was distressing to look at. Distressing to look at. Now, you don't believe that. You walk up against uh, someone and you see them bigger than you and stronger than you. It will create stress in your life and then distress. I dare say when that giant, when Goliath came over the hill, everybody was distressed. Now, if you look at here, you will find that they were afraid. And I just lost my verse. Say, so what did you say? Oh, yeah, verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, that would be Goliath, they lost their courage and were terrified. You know what the truth is? Any giant God, uh, Satan sends your way is going to be, appear bigger than you. It's going to feel, appear stronger than you. You know why? Because Satan only sends his best, his biggest, and his baddest to come and get you. Satan only puts into your life what you don't feel like you can defeat. But not only is the giant just distressing to look at and distressing to handle, the second thing I will tell you is that he's daring. The giant is daring. If you look here, Goliath said, I defy you. In fact, us men, we don't know about this. When you read this story, Goliath gets there and plays on their male pride. It's almost like I double dog dare you to come down here and fight me. Now, there's a lot of things that men put up with, but normally if you get a double dog dare and you're a kid, you're there. You know what I'm talking about? He's daring. He came out and he said, look, he said, I defy you today. Come on out so we can fight each other. You see, the truth is, that giant is trying to get us. Now, please listen. The giant, whatever it is in your life, and we're going to get there in just a little bit, whatever it is in your life is trying to play on your pride, trying to get you to react out of emotion, trying to get you to come fight alone. That's certainly what Goliath was trying to do, trying to get somebody, get you to act outside of the will of God because he can get you outside of the will of God. He can get his claws on you. He can defeat you. The third thing that I see about old Goliath is that he was diligent. He was diligent. How long did he do this? Verse 16, we didn't read it, but it's there. Every morning and evening for 40 days. Please listen. The giant Satan sends to pull you down is not here today and gone tomorrow. He's here today, and he's here to stay until he can get you or you make him go away. Because you see, the truth is, the enemy wants to pull you down. And he is going to be... He is going to be persistent trying to pull at you, trying to make you depressed and discouraged and despondent. Just remember, I've said it before. I've never heard anybody else say it, so I say it freely because I believe it so deeply. God, uh, Satan knows your weakness, and he knows when you're weakest, and he is going to do his best to exploit that weakness at just the right time. And he's going to send a giant in your, in your life. 
You may already have one. You may already identify one. We'll get there in a second. When I see this giant and I'm, and I'm thinking about Goliath, I think not only is he distressing to look at, not only is he daring in his voice, not only is he diligent, but number four, he's demoralizing. Now, Brother Jerry, where do you get that? Because they lost hope. A giant in your life will make you lose hope. <clears throat> Ten years ago, 12 years ago, down at the church in Gulf Coast, we spent a good bit of money and bought a rent at least for two years the rights to some TV commercials, professional made, and then they just slated it with our, our name and, and a welcome from our church. But one of those six commercials showed a man sitting over in a room by himself, a shirt, jeans, may have been an alcohol bottle sitting on the floor. And as the camera panned in from behind him over here, something like this, I don't remember all the exact statistics, but it said a man can live without water for 40 days. He can live without food for 12 days. He can live without oxygen for six minutes. But how long can a man live without hope? You see, when that giant gets his claws in you and comes and just is so diligent and stays there, he will cause you to lose hope. He will cause you to lose your faith if you let him in your life. And that's why the fifth characteristic I'll tell you about the description of the giant is that he's dangerous. He's dangerous. If you're toying with something in your life that's overwhelming to you and you're trying to go it alone and he's getting victories, it is dangerous. He will kill you. What do you think would have happened to David if he had gone out on that mountainside um, in, that, in that valley and faced Goliath without taking God with him? I can tell you what had happened. A nine-foot-nine giant with all that armor and a little two-bit, scrawny-nosed shepherd boy coming out with a slingshot, it would have been a massacre. Do you know that when we go out against Satan on our own, do you know we stand just about as much chance of defeating giants on our own as David would have defeating Goliath on his own? Dangerous. In the land of the giants, you need to learn what a giant looks like. You need to learn the qualities that he'll bring into your life. The description of a giant. So, the second thing I'll talk to you about is the detection of a giant. How do you detect the giant? What, what, is there, what is there that will let me know that this thing in my life has the potential of developing into being a giant? I'm going to give you four characteristics, although there's many more. The first one would be the giant in your life is anything that... A, Attempts to take your mind off of Christ. Anything in your life that tends to take your mind off of Christ. Now listen, it doesn't have to be bad things. It can be good things. Years ago I was studying where Gideon carried the men down to, the, uh, to, to drink water. It was the last thing before they went to battle. And he separated what something like... He went from 30,000 down to 300 with that last little bit. And they knelt down in the water, 
And some of them took the water like this so they could look, and the other ones got down like a dog and lapped. And the ones that put their face in that water were of no use to God. And I want to tell you what that water, what God showed me that water can represent. That water can represent a lot of good things. It can represent Bible study. It can represent church membership. It can represent my Sunday school class. When we get so focused on something that matters so little, it can be a piece of property, it can be a building, it can be family, it can be anything. And we get to focus in on it so much that it takes our mind off of Christ. It becomes a giant in our lives. Because anything that stands between you and what you're looking at when you're trying to see Jesus it is, by definition, a giant. second thing I'd say to you, not only is it when it attempts to take your mind off Christ, but the second thing that a giant will try to do, it tends to, to tempt you to embrace the unscriptural. I need to tell you, say two things about this as a matter of warning to us. First of all, Southern Baptists are quite likely the most acceptable to cults today. It's not a matter so much that we embrace, on one hand, the unscriptural, as much as it is we don't know what the Bible says. That's why it's a need that every time someone comes to Christ that they get in a disciple program. Well, Brother Jerry, I didn't have one, okay? You didn't have one, that's fine. How consistent is your Bible study? How consistent is your prayer life? How consistent is your being able to share your faith? You don't know what answer to me. You don't know what answer to him. You see, we can't stand on promises if we don't know what they are. And when you don't know what they are, you just kind of sit around in your mind and, and, you, and you know what? You sit around in your mind, you start just kind of meditating on things without God's Word to lead you and teach you. You know what happened? Satan to get in. Anything God can do, Satan can counterfeit. And here's what happens. We get way off base when we don't center it on God's Word. You see, your experience, whatever you experience, whatever you think is validated by the Word of God. If you have an experience and you go look at the Bible and it doesn't back it up, somebody else gave you that experience. Because God's as good as His Word. Is that an amen? Anything that tempts you to embrace the unscriptural. The other thing I'll tell you is that it also is speaking of sin. That we, that we embrace the unscriptural about sin. I dare say that this one disease has permeated the church in America today. Too many people say, let's just live and let live. The church has no right to discipline. The church has no right to correct. If you have your Bibles, let's debunk that line of thinking right now. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As most of us know, Paul wrote the letter to 1 Corinthians, if my memory serves me correct. Brother Terry can straighten me out later if I got it wrong. If my memory serves me correct, actually 1 Corinthians was the second letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and then 2 Corinthians was the third letter. There's another one that did not make it into the Bible. But please listen, Paul was writing to a church that was known to be carnal, known to be worldly, known to have problems, and he was trying to fix it. 
Verse five, chapter 5 only has a baker's dozen verses in it, so let's just read a little of it. Paul writes, It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even condoned among the Gentiles. You see, Paul was saying we Gentiles were more immoral than anybody else. And here's the sin. A man is living with his stepmom. A man is living with his father's wife. And you are inflated with pride instead of being filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from among you. For, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, I have already decided about him who has done this thing as though I were present. In the name of our Lord. Now let me just give that a modern day translation. For Christ's sakes. In the name of our Lord, when you're assembled along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Now, I'm going to pause there to say this. Don't you know that a little sin in the church has its way of corrupting the entire church? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. That means... Get rid of the sin in the church, since you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not only with old yeast or with yeast of evil and malice, malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, here's where it gets down to the brass tacks. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, by no means referring to the world's immoral people. Or to even greedy, to the greedy and swindlers or to the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But now, I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Four, what is it to me to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are inside? Verse 12 says, we spend all our time judging people who are outside the body because they're not Christian and they act like they're not Christian. They act like they're not believers. Why are you surprised at that? Why do you judge them? Judgment is to begin at the house of God. If we call ourselves believers, if we call ourselves little Christ, we should conduct ourselves as little Christ. And verse 13 is just kind of the nail on the head. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. Now, does it get any clearer than that? Now, please listen. We have some men in this room, our deacons, who have sat with me as we talked through church discipline a couple of times. And they'll bear, they'll bear up, I believe, if they're honest. The first, the first priority of church discipline to go approach somebody like this, the first priority is always reconciliation and restoration. In fact, if you go to deal with somebody and you have anything in your heart other than reconcili reconciliation and restoration, then you shouldn't go. You see, folks, we're not to be heartless about this. But we're also not to be spineless about this. We have sat back too long and allowed...
those who name the name of Christ to live and let live, to be immoral in an immoral world. Till today, there's no difference in the, those who claim to know Christ and those who have no connection to Christ. I'll give you one personal illustration about how deeply I feel about this. I have a friend who's now dead, a godly man, a praying man. He had some difficulty with his pastor. He wasn't the only one. About half to three-quarters of the church left. There were some legal issues. The pastor almost wound up in jail with charges. That doesn't matter. My buddy called me. I'll call him Charlie. Charlie called me and he said, Brother Jerry, I respect you. Tell me, how do you get rid of a preacher? And I said, did you call me because you want me to tell you what you want to hear? Or because you know I'll tell you the truth? He said, you, you've always told me the truth. I said, okay, you don't do it. He goes, well, uh, I mean, he knew better. And I said, you just don't do it. I said, if you want to get rid of him, you pray that God takes him to his next assignment. Or that God moves you. And he said, okay. He said, he said, are there any other? And I said, okay. If you want a, a, a train of thought, let me give this to you. Go to Matthew 18 and apply Matthew 18. But here's the kick. When he's approached, he must be repro- approached in the manner of reconciliation and restoration of all relationships. And I said, I need to tell you one other thing, Charlie. And he said, okay. I said, You're not the man. I said, you don't have a relationship with him. He said, you know, Brother Jerry, even as we've been thinking, we've been talking, I know that I'm not the man. You pray for us that we'll do right. They did not run the preacher off. He didn't even bring it to the floor. He prayed it through. And ultimately, he and about half the church left. And a few months later, the pastor left. It's It's a sad state. But the point being... That any time there's struggle in the church, the first, the first priority has to be reconciliation and restoration. If it's not, you'll become unscriptural in your life. The third thing is already up there that you see when you detect a giant. Anything that is blatantly selfish. Anything that is blatantly selfish can and will become a giant in your life. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 8. There's a man named Simon there who was known for to be a sorcerer, a man of of magic. He would wow the crowds with all the things that he could do. The short version, Philip and his team went down and preached the gospel to his town People were saved. They were baptized. Simon believed and was baptized. Now, you remember this is the book of Acts. It's when the Holy Spirit starts, is is falling in different ways. At that time, they'd get saved and baptized. Then the apostles would lay their hands on them, and the Holy Spirit would come on them. Unlike today, where the Holy Spirit comes when we get saved. 
And Simon began to dog and follow this evangelistic team wherever they went. And he saw them laying their hands on them and, and saw what would happen to people when the Holy Spirit came on them, how their lives were changed, how their hearts were affected. He wanted some of that. So you know what old Simon did? He offered them money if they'd give him the power of the Holy Spirit. It had nothing to do with blessing people's lives. It had nothing to do with doing what was right. It had to do with me being in the spotlight. Just as I read that, I thought, you know, I wonder if old Simon was a forerunner of what's going on in churches today. God calls us to do ministry as individuals. And in more places than one, I see people who are willing to give money and not themselves. They're willing to pay somebody else to do what God's called them to do. You see, what happens in our lives is that giant takes over and we become selfish. Selfish. There's one last thing that I'll just kind of run around a little bit. I could, there's a lot more we could say. The fourth thing I suggest to you how you can detect a giant is when the result does not honor God. Let me just give you one quick example. I know we're running out of time. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark set out on a mission trip, missionary journey. Times got tough. The work got hard. And either because of discouragement or fear, John Mark turned and went home. And here's what I will tell you. Abandoning the work does not ever bring honor and glory to God. Abandon in your call. Did you hear what we read this morning? I didn't really have time to run around it. In Romans chapter 11, around verse 27, 28, it says, The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, are without repentance. They don't, he don't take them back. You see, if we respond to his call, then we honor him with everything that we do. If we don't, the giant's taken over. The description of the giant, the detection of the giant. Now how about the destruction of the giant? You know, if you find a giant in your life, and it could, be, it could wear a lot of names, find a giant in your life, don't you want to destroy it? I'll give you three words. The first word is the word tools. If you go to battle with a giant, have the right tools. For David, it happened to be a slingshot. For you, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says, The weapons of our warfare are not worldly, they're not fleshly, they're not of mankind, but they are mighty through God. You see, when we go to battle, we go to battle with the right tools. Psalm 119 says, Your word have I hid in my heart. Here's what I will tell you. If you're going to do battle, you better have the right counsel, the right counselor, and you better have the right comforter going with you. It's incredibly important. David took what he uh, had in his hand, that slingshot. Second thing I'll tell you, Second word I'll give you is the word truth. 
You better have truth on your side. Now, I'm going to give you this one truth. If you're writing down, you want to write it down. Oh, David was focused correctly. You read this story, Saul, the brothers, the army, and everybody else was focused on that 10-foot giant. When David entered the picture, he focused on God. He said, you come to me with a dagger, spear, and sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And then he couldn't stop talking about the Lord because that truth of the Lord will overcome any fear that you may have, any discouragement, any doubt you may have. The truth will always win out. And you know what Jesus said? I am the way. Say it with me. And the You want to overcome a giant? You need the truth. Now, there is another truth here. Please listen. David approached Goliath with that slingshot. And he slung the stone. The truth is, is that David may not have known where that opening was in that helmet. But God did. And I just wonder, will y'all let me just wonder just a second? I wonder if David hitting that giant right there. The only place he could was more attributed to David's talent or God's accuracy. And I will tell you this, if God can put a rock between the eyes of a nine-foot giant slung from the hand of a five-foot boy, and he can put it right there, I dare say that he is accurate enough to find out what's going on in my life and protect me from giants and to set my feet on the right path. Oh, David slung that thing, put him on the ground. The last word I want to give you is triumph. Triumph. You think of this, you think of this destroying the giant. Watch this. David was not content for the giant to be on the ground. You know what it reminds me of? A year ago, November, you remember that I was down for about four or five weeks with pneumonia. Went to Dr. John Morgan. Many of you use her. Dr. Morgan, he's, I think he's an excellent physician, went there and he gave me medicine. And when he handed me the medicine, when he first diagnosed me, he said, this is 10 days, take it till it's gone. Me being the baby I am, I wound up in his office four or five days later for a follow-up. He said, uh, Jerry, how you feeling? I said, man, I'm feeling really good now. He goes, you still taking the medicine? I said, do I need to? He said, I told you to take it till it's gone. I don't want the bug beat down. I want the bug dead. Do you know what? David knocked the giant on the ground, and he ran up to the giant, and he took his own, took the giant sword, took off his head, and I'm going to tell you, in those days, head meant victorious. It wanted to be victorious. Do you want to be victorious against the giants in your life? Go by a lot of names. Watch this. Discouragement, depression, lust, anger, grief, gossip, attitude, family. You want to just stay here all night naming them? Let me end tonight with just four quick thoughts. I want to give you an encouragement. I want to move from enlightenment to encouragement.
And I want to tell you four things I want to encourage you to do to get rid of the giants. Number one is be prepared. Be prepared. It's not if a giant will come into your life. It's not if a giant will attack you. It's that he will attack you. It's when. You know what the truth is? You can't wait to get ready to fight a giant when you're standing face to face with him. You have to decide now. The second thing I'll tell you, besides be prepared, is be pure. Do you know what sin in your life will do? And it don't matter what kind. Do you realize that God don't have levels of sin? Sin is sin. It don't matter whether you commit adultery or you gossip. It don't matter whether you lust or you're angry. It's sin is sin to him. Do you know what sin will do? When you're facing a giant, it will leave your helmet open. So the giant's got a free shot. Be pure. The third suggestion that I'll make to you is not just be prepared, be pure, but be prayerful. I dare say that one of the reasons God has been blessing us so much in recent months is because we have returned to an emphasis of prayer. If we'll offer our petitions to the Lord, I believe he will continue to respond. The last thing I will tell you is be persistent. Be persistent. Here's what, here's what I'm going to tell you. The giant's going to be persistent. He's not going to just try it once and leave you alone. One of the greatest liabilities and the greatest insults to the kingdom of God is God's people growing weary and well-doing and fainting away or falling away because they're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. In the land of the giants, take note, be ready, and be prepared. Let's pray together.